A pandemic had overtaken the world. A cancer. A virus had wormed its way through all of humanity, leaving a path of destruction in its wake. As time had passed, the deadly ramifications of the virus had not ceased, but humanity, fatigued by its reality, began to become numb to its presence, as if believing if it wasn't there would somehow make it disappear. You see, what made it so difficult is while its impacts were so clearly felt, the virus itself could not be measured by the human senses. The true deadliness of the disease could not be measured by the world's most leading technicians and medical professionals. This deadly pandemic of sin brought with it catastrophic destruction. Death, disease, brokenness, hopelessness. But then came a promise, a promise of hope, a promise to heal, to find freedom from the enslavement that had so long bound humanity by Messiah. The promise of one who would set people free. As was read by Mike and Jamie this morning, Isaiah 53 foretells a prophecy of Jesus, the Messiah. These words were spoken over 700 years before Christ walked the earth. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus in the Easter story through the eyes of some of those who were there in person. Now, many of these characters may not be the first ones that come to your mind. And perhaps they aren't ones that you would mark as the hero of the story. In fact, the words that may come to mind when you think of them are scoundrels, fools, and villains. Today we want to look at Easter through their eyes. The first group of characters I want to look at this morning are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Again, referring to our main passage that we'll be working out of Isaiah 53, says that he, speaking of Jesus, was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. It's the end of verse 4. Now, if you are familiar at all with the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you will know that it was often the religious leaders that had issue with him. And it was the religious leaders that first captured Jesus and brought him to the Roman authorities, asking for him to be killed by crucifixion. Now, no doubt, over the three years of Jesus' public ministry, he drew big crowds, he had radical teaching, and there were even conversations about miracles. Make no mistake, the religious leaders had heard about this Jesus. If we want to have some pre-context to this incident that happens at Easter, you can go in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 11. We see... A moment that transpires as Jesus performs an incredible miracle. He raises a man from the dead, a man who was his friend by the name of Lazarus. You can just imagine the reaction of the people that were there, astounded by this incredible miracle as a man was buried in a tomb and comes out alive as Jesus calls him out. Yet, what were the reactions of these religious leaders to this incredible miracle? In John eleven forty eight, 48, we see their response. 
If we allow him, meaning Jesus, to go on like this, teaching and performing miracles, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. See, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, they prized order and tradition. It was what kept the fabric of their people together through hundreds of years of oppression and exile. It was the temple and religious systems that provided these men's, men with the power that they had. Now, they had their own personal reasons to want to destroy Jesus. Make no doubt about it. First of all, it was the fact that Jesus insulted them. Jesus made them look bad. Think about it in your life. For someone who makes you look bad in public, you can have a vendetta, an issue with them. He spoke against their hypocrisy and the made-up hierarchy through which they had enslaved others and found their wealth, their power, their hope, and their identity. Jesus also was an issue because Jesus taught things that posed a threat to political unrest. See, Jesus allowed for people who were called zealots to follow him. There were those that would push against the establishment of the Roman rulership. He allowed sinners to follow him, and they were potentially dangerous in causing another uprising. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had to walk a tightrope. They didn't really love the Romans who were over them. But yet at the same hand, they had to play almost politician to the same point as they did devout religious person. While they despised their Roman rulers and would love nothing more than to overthrow them, they also didn't want to push them because it was Rome, after all, that had allowed for the temple to be reconstructed and ceremonies to be performed there. If an uprising were to happen by this Jesus and his radical teaching and his followers, the Romans would retaliate and they would retaliate against the Jews. The freedoms that they had experienced in Jerusalem could be stopped and stolen from them. And with that, much of the power, wealth, and prestige these religious leaders had been afforded. Make no doubt, these leaders didn't have the ability to summon someone to death by themselves. This could only be done by Roman power. But they wanted Jesus to publicly be punished, to be squelched for the rebellion that he led to be squelched. So they brought Jesus to the Roman authorities, seeking the ultimate punishment, crucifixion. You see, through the eyes of the religious leaders, Jesus was a threat to be eliminated. The next character I want to look through and see Jesus and Easter through their eyes is a character by the name of Judas. Going back to Isaiah 53 and the second half of verse 3, it states, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. Now, even for those of you who, whether you're online this morning or you're in person, and maybe you're just investigating church and this is new to you, you are probably still familiar with the name Judas. Culturally, Judas is quite well known because we use his name synonymous with betrayal. I ask you this morning, just close your eyes for three seconds. When I say the name Judas, what comes to mind to you? What's the picture that you have? Is it a guy with maybe a little bit of a hunchback, greasy mullet hair? 
Maybe a scar down the side of his face talks with a bit of a raspy voice. I'm a child of the 80s, so for me, I tend to get a picture of Gargamel from the Smurfs. But see, this picture that we often have of Judas, of how we view Judas must have been this, this man who had such incredible betrayal, this horrible villain, probably didn't actually line up to what people saw in his day. To the naked eye, Judas wouldn't have been seen as such a seedy character, but he would have actually been quite well respected. You see, Judas was actually again chosen to be one of the 12 who was allowed to follow Jesus everywhere he went. Not only was Judas one of the 12, but Judas was the one who was actually chosen to carry the money belt. Judas was in charge of the finances of Jesus' crew. That's not a job you give to someone who's the seedy character in the group. But he was probably looked as someone who who was trustworthy. Ironically, it was the one who was trusted to protect the finances of Jesus that ended up betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. So what happened? While on the exterior, Judas may have looked to have it all together, the truth is, is he always struggled with a deceitful heart. Again, if we want to rewind a little bit before the Easter story, before Judas ever betrays Jesus, we see a little bit of this in in John chapter 12. And here we see the story of a woman named Mary comes and she breaks a jar of expensive perfume, perfume that would have cost a year's worth of wages, and breaks it open and pours it over Jesus' feet and washes and anoints Jesus' feet. Such an extravagant form of worship. The reaction of Judas, the one who's in charge of the money belt, is this in verse 4 of John 12. He says, but Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, said, that perfume is worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he actually cared for the poor. See, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It would appear that Judas used Jesus as a way to attain wealth for himself. Jesus, for him, was a way and a means to power. Have you ever had a relationship with someone in your life who used you? Maybe they used you to gain power prestige, or popularity. So we see in John 12, Jesus did not do things the way Judas thought they should be done. Here's what happens when you are in a relationship with someone who is a user. Eventually, when you no longer satisfy their personal desires that they try to fulfill through you, then they will turn their back on you. That's what happened with Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus and turned his back on him. He sold him out to the religious leaders who were out for him for 30 pieces of silver. See, through the eyes of Judas, Jesus was simply a means to an end. The third group of people I want to look at this morning in the Easter story all have what may seem as different responses or interactions with Jesus, 
but all have a similar way of treating him in the end. Their names are Herod, Pilate, and Barabbas. If you're watching, if you're with us this morning and you're not familiar with the Easter story, stay with us. That's okay. We're going to describe this through. You don't need to know these names. We're going to talk a little bit about them. Again, going back to Isaiah, which was a prophecy about Jesus and what would happen to Jesus. It says that he was despised and we did not care. So from this point of Judas selling Jesus out, he gives them to the religious leaders who again want Jesus exterminated. They want him out. They no longer want to have to hear about their hypocrisy. They no longer want this competition and they don't want an uprising that will make Rome angry. So what do they do? They judge Jesus themselves, but they are unable to execute him. So they bring him to the Roman authorities with the hope of seeing Jesus killed. Both Herod and Pilate are authorities in this area. And they have the authority to kill Jesus as the religious leaders desired. Pilate in particular had heard about Jesus and he was intrigued to hear him. In examining him, neither he nor Herod, as the Gospels tell us, could find any fault in Jesus. Luke 23 states this. Pilate's words were, I have examined him thoroughly, and on this point, in your presence, and find him innocent. Innocent. Yet here's the thing. Despite seeing him as innocent, despite the fact that he could go through all of the case against him and find nothing. Yet we see his response is, I'm going to sentence him to be flogged with 40 lashes. Now, 40 lashes is not the equivalent of 40 spankings like I got when I was a kid. It's not a belt. But it was a whip with shards of bone that would go in and would rip the flesh off the individual who was being whipped 40 times in and out. If Jesus was innocent, and again, Pilate and Herod, their whole role, the, way I, the reason why they're in the positions they were because they were esteemed as men who could make good judgments, why would there be any penalty if he was innocent? You see, for both Pilate and Herod, with a mob in uproar, the truth of Jesus' innocence was an inconvenience not worth fighting for. Yet even with these lashes, this mortifying punishment to Jesus' body, the religious leaders were not satisfied. And they stoked the fires of the crowd, asking for Jesus to be killed. The gospel account states that there was a custom at Passover, which was a Jewish celebration, which was a moment when the the Israelites were set free from Egypt. Egypt. Where the angel of death came and took the firstborn of every child, but if the Israelites would paint blood of a perfect lamb over their doorposts, that the angel would pass by and death would be spared. It was during this time that they would allow the governor of Judea, Pilate, to free one prisoner. So Pilate, instead of saying, this man is innocent, I'm going to let him go, he tries to pot it off again. It's not worth it to him. And he presents two criminals The first criminal is a man named Barabbas. And the second is Jesus. 
Now, Matthew refers to Barabbas only as a notorious prisoner. Barabbas was not innocent. Mark and Luke further refer to Barabbas as one involved in starting a riot. He was a zealot and probably spearheaded an insurrection rioting against the Roman powers at, at hand. According to the Gospels, Barabbas had also committed murder. The crowd cheered, yelled, and asked for Barabbas to be released and Jesus of Nazareth to be crucified. I'm sure Pilate assumed one man innocent, one man clearly a notorious criminal. They'll have to say, let Jesus go. But they demanded for Barabbas. And Pilate reluctantly yielded to their insistence. Now again, use your imagination with me for a moment. And picture yourself in a cell. The noise of a mob outside deafening. You had been sitting there waiting, knowing that your end is near. Barabbas had no doubt, a clear expectation. He was not innocent. There was not going to be a trial. He was caught red-handed. He started riots and he committed murder. And death by crucifixion was coming. The most painful of deaths possible. Think of the anguish just waiting for those moments. Anticipating those nails coming into your flesh. Suddenly he's pulled out put in front of the crowd and a man that was knowingly innocent and, and was commanded to be innocent instead of him is sentenced to death and he is set free. How would you respond to something like that? It's interesting to note that we see nothing mentioned of Barabbas after his release. No expression of gratitude no allegiance to Jesus, no seeking of his followers to find out who this man was. He simply got his get-out-of-jail-free card, and he left. Herod, Pilate, and Barabbas, all of them, they saw Jesus. They see him despised, undeservingly, and even though knowingly innocent condemned, yet they cared not. Through their eyes, Jesus is seen as unworthy of care or expenditure. It's amazing the responses of all these characters that we've looked at so far this morning. You see, they all saw Jesus. But even though they saw Jesus, they were focused on themselves. The religious leaders wanted to protect their own traditions, to fight for their own share their reaction showed they cared more for the benefits of, of the power of religion than they did about God and truth. Many in our world can relate. We look at politics or religion as a way to gratify ourselves. Systems and laws make us comfortable. A system that allows us to earn our own righteousness, our own way, our own standing. I'm a good person. Or Judas who responded out of selfishness, 
See, Judas didn't want Jesus necessarily to die, but he wanted Jesus to stop giving away money. He saw Jesus as a means to an end. His potential to be a revolutionary could be so much greater if Jesus would just get the greater potential and see it as he did. But when Judas could see Jesus would not do things the way he wanted, he betrayed him. Barabbas. Again, we see no record of gratitude or concern for the innocent man that just took his place. But he simply got out of Dodge and took his freedom, like many today in how they relate to Jesus. Jesus is simply their get out of free card. I'll add Jesus on top of my life just to cover my butt, just in case. I'll say that prayer that they mentioned at church that one time, just in case. But nothing actually changes in their life. It's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. Or it's Pilate and Herod who knew in their own conscience that Jesus was innocent, but sentencing him to die was easier than having to deal with his disturbance. They refused to open their own hearts to the truth because the pressure of the world around them brought fear. It's like many of us today who recognize that our life and this world isn't the way it should be. We see that it's broken. We get that the message the world tries to sell us that really happiness is found in fame or wealth or power, we've learned enough to know that it's not true, that it's still empty. Yet the idea of upsetting the course of life or upsetting the people around us makes us timid and afraid to call out the truth. So we continue to go through the motions of life to try and simply bury that voice of conscience that's challenging us. For each of the characters that we've covered so far this morning, their very perception of who Jesus was had more to do with a focus on themselves than it did the actual personhood of Jesus. And I believe many of us can be guilty of that very same error. Our perception of who Jesus is is really just the result of our own projections and desires than it is the reality of the personhood of Jesus. But if you really want to understand Easter, if you really want to know who Jesus is, you need to see it not through the filter of your own perception, but we need to see truth through the lens of truth. See Jesus for who he was and is. 1 John 3 and 2 says this, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we'll be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. We will see him as he really is. The key to actually finding life and hope that is of Easter is not looking at Jesus through the eyes of others, but seeing him as he is. Seeing Easter through the eyes of Jesus. So we want to take a few minutes to look through the eyes of Jesus this morning.
Now, in contrasting this with the other characters that we've covered today, one of the key things that that Jesus is different than everyone else is Jesus was actually at the center of everything that was going on. Yet he is the only one who is not focused on himself. Isaiah 53 again says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. Jesus, through the point of his punishment, the whip, the hammer, and the cross, experienced every bit of shame and pain that is possible. He was mocked and abused. He was spat at, slapped, stripped naked of his clothes, given a crown of thorns that were pressed into his scalp. Every ounce of pain that is possible to feel in humanity, he felt. But Isaiah goes on to say, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. Our sorrows. The punishments that we were owed rightfully. The Bible says Jesus took upon himself This word sorrow refers to physical, but also mental pain and anguish. Jesus felt every form of physical pain you could feel. And he also experienced the fullness of grief and mental anguish that anyone could possibly suffer. It's why the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as our suffering savior. Today, if you experience a grief that you cannot explain, If you experience physical pain, if you experience mental pain, anguish, suffering, that you feel alone in, Jesus is the only one who can resonate and can understand. He doesn't sit with his arms crossed in judgment. He is our suffering Savior, and he resonates with your mental anguish this morning. The Bible says that Jesus knew that his life on earth would have to experience crucifixion and death. Jesus experienced the anguish leading up to that moment, knowing that it was coming. Yet, throughout it all, his thoughts were not on his own well-being. His thoughts were not simply taken up with the pain that he would have to experience and how unfair it was for him. His focus was on you. His focus through it all was on you. Isaiah 53.5 says that he was pierced for our, you and me, our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole and he was whipped so we could be healed. On the cross, we see Jesus only pay attention to two things. The instructions given to him by the Father and wanting to be obedient to the Father. And the other focus of his attention was on the very ones who brought pain, death, and sorrow upon his physical body. His response to those, his response to the people that we've discussed this morning, 
his response to you and I. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Instead of fighting for the liberty and justice he rightfully deserved, Jesus willingly died for all of them, for all of us. For those who like the religious leaders look at Christianity simply as a hoax. For those of you who may be even watching this morning, you don't know why you tuned into a church today. Maybe it was just intrigue. Maybe you wanted to see how they do church during a pandemic. And you see Christianity as a hoax and Jesus simply as one who is a threat to your own liberties. Just another religion. Jesus died for you. For those of us who feel frustrated like Judas, who are bitter at God because he didn't do things the way that we thought it should be done. And it's not trivial in our minds. We have loved ones that come to mind. We have pain, we have cancer, we have hurt. So you try to construct your own idea of God to fit your own needs. Jesus died for you. For those who look at the promise of grace, forgiveness that the Bible talks about, free forgiveness, and like Barabbas, try to use God as a cheap trick, a get-out-of-jail-free card, a just-in-case, but you don't actually know him, and you have never lived your life for him. Jesus died for you. For those who are like Pilate and Herod, truthfully, you are arrogant within your own self. Believing that your good works or your superior intellect, your virtue or value will somehow earn you eternal life. Jesus died for you. As incredibly significant as Christ's death is on the cross, as powerful as that is, that he would pay for your sin with his own life. It's not the whole story. Today, Easter, we celebrate that Jesus not only died, but the Bible tells us that three days later, he was buried in a tomb and rose again, victorious over sin and death. This is incredibly important. You see, in his death, Jesus bore the penalty of your sin and mine. But it was in his resurrected life that he broke the curse of sin and death. Now, perhaps you're watching today and you're going, well, how can I know? How could I know that there was a guy 2,000 years ago? I think that's folklore. I don't have time to give you all the details, but I would love to. There'll be an opportunity at the end this morning for you to contact us, and I would love to give you some details. But there is more historical fact, even outside of biblical documents, of Jesus' resurrection than there is even that Napoleon even lived. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. And it is his resurrected life that means new life for me and for you. 
Our penalty was paid by his death. But the curse of sin is broken and eternal life is available to you in his resurrected life. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 23 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through one man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, now if you're new to church, Adam, being the first man that was created, was in perfect harmony and relationship with God, commits sin, and in that there is a brokenness of that relationship, and that's where we see death and destruction come into our world. Just as death came because of Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. The resurrection of Jesus is the climax of the story of God's reconciliation to a world doomed by the plague of sin. This is the story of the Bible. Through his victory over death, God was able to address the brokenness of humanity. It's the brokenness that you and I experience, even those of you who have never, ever thought of yourself as a person who would go to church, who've never considered who Jesus was. You know that there is a brokenness inside of you. It's the one that you work really hard to try and disguise. Through his victory over death, God was able to address this brokenness and now restore what he always desired wholeness restored to humanity and the ability to have right relationship with God. Again, the end of that passage we've been referring to in Isaiah 53, the end of verse 5, he, meaning Jesus, was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Through Jesus, you are healed. That word can also mean made healthful, freed from the disease of death, the traps in your life that continually bring death, freedom from those addictions and enslavements that have defined you and secretly held you captive. You are made whole. You are made complete. You are made peaceful. I know for some of us this morning, that word peace seems so foreign that we don't even understand what that would actually look like to live with peace. When we are brought back into right standing with God, there is a peace that comes in our life. Because we are made complete. We are no longer void and in need. The Bible is a love letter. A story of a God who created humankind to have loving relationship. And it, it tells the story of his pursuit and work culminated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to restore once again right relationship with you and I to him. It's what we are created for. And it's what we long for. Some of us to this point have not been able to pinpoint it. You wouldn't even be able to say that yourself. You simply know it as that emptiness inside of you. That longing to be connected with something beyond yourself. That hunger 
to be connected with your creator. And through Jesus, because of Easter, that is what we can experience once again. Can we come today and see him as he is? Just before I close in prayer this morning, I want to read two verses out of Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. The race meaning this life. Let's run with endurance. Some of us have become very tired. Some of you, to be honest, you have been questioning, how do I keep going? How do I keep going? In your own heart and mind, maybe you don't even want to ever say this because you think it will make it more true. You don't want to ever share it because you don't want to deal with how people would view you. But you don't know how to keep going. You are exhausted. You are tired. You are hopeless. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. How? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he was seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. It's the place that you and I are called and welcome to join him in. I'm going to ask if you'll close your eyes. If you're watching online, I don't know who's around you, but it's okay. You can do that too. Just ask just for a moment. We're going to pray. Just to close your eyes. If prayer is new to you, prayer is just a word we use to say we're going to talk to God. And you don't have to have any preconscribed words to do that. And you maybe have never done it before. God's already on the other end of the line and he's listening. What I'm going to ask is I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and before I pray, My prayer for you and me today is that we can see him as he is. So with your eyes closed, just in your own heart and mind, say, God, help me to see you as you are. I'm just going to give 10 seconds of quiet here. God, help us to see you as you are. that picture, Lord, on our heart of Jesus. Beaten and battered. But eyes fixed on us. God, forgive us where we just tend to see you and make you what we want you to be. What we think you need to be where we've come with our own preconceived notions, whether that's just you're a hoax and you're not real, or we've made our own demigod that we want to say you have to be to serve us. Help us again today to see you as you are. Perhaps there's some of you here today or some who are watching online right now 
and you have never experienced and known the real Jesus. As we've discussed today, he bore the penalty of your sin, your mistakes, that separation that you feel, that longing to be with God, sin is the thing that keeps you from him. And Jesus paid the penalty of it so you could know him closely, intimately, hear him and be with him again. To live even after beyond the life of your physical body, to live an eternal life with him. If you want to receive that, it's literally a matter of receiving it. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth and believe with our hearts that Jesus is Lord, that he's just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So today, if that's you, you could just say a prayer like this in your own heart. Again, just talking to God. He hears you. Something like this. Dear God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus paid my penalty. I know I've made mistakes. And I... I need to know you. Please forgive me. Come live in me and help me to live for you. Help me to not just see my life through my own lens. Help me to see through your eyes. Thank you for restoring hope. Help me to live that out. For all of us, God, for each one today, may we live with the hope that we have. For some of us who have traded that hope in for our own self-serving desires, forgive us. For those of us who have been at 40 Easter services before in our lives, And God, we've allowed that message to become routine. Help us to see you as you are today. Help us to share the truth of the hope of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you, God, for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just before Pastor Jaden comes... If you're here in person or you're watching online today, and perhaps this is the first time you've heard the true message of Jesus, or it's the first time that you've really invited and had that desire of Jesus come live in me, we would love to be able to come alongside you in this new journey you have with him. I'd love to be able to talk to you this week, give you some resources, pray with you, encourage you, and support you. If you wanted to text the word Jesus to the number on the screen in front of you, give us an opportunity to do that. We'd love to celebrate with you. The Bible says that all of heaven rejoices over one person who gives their heart to Christ. The other thing we'd love to do is we'd love to invite you to come and join Alpha as we were talking about earlier. Uh, You can, again, look in the video description if you're online or if you're here this morning. Come chat with me. We'll get you signed up. Alpha is going to be starting not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday night. It's going to go through and we're going to talk more about who Jesus is. If you're just interested and intrigued by what you heard today and you want to learn more about the Christian faith, you want to learn more about Jesus Come join us. That's going to be 7 o'clock online starting next Tuesday night. Thanks so much.